Romans chapter 3. As I was studying for this chapter, more than one occasion I came across a commentator saying, this is probably the most difficult part of the book of Romans. You know, and I hear something like that and I just get scared. It's like, oh no, <laughs> difficult. For some reason I think it's like a test and I'm going to, you know, oh no, am I missing my long division or, or what's going on? But the only reason it really becomes difficult is because of Paul kind of runs these sentences on quite a bit, which I, now I understand why it's so frustrating when I give Mary things to prove because I am the king of the run-on sentences. She probably is thinking, no, that's normal for you, Sam. You should be right along with this. But Paul, in the first two chapters, the first chapter, he has laid a case of why the Gentile world is without excuse in their condition of sin. That creation has let them know that there is of God and their life that's been depraved is just evidence of their hearts being separated from the true and living God. And that they have no foundation to stand on as far as their condition is concerned. They're full of idolatry, sexual immorality, there's a lot of things that are taking place that are evidence of their separation from God. And Paul clearly states those things in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he goes to the Jews, those who had the law. He says, you too are without excuse. You're quick to judge them, but you're slow to judge yourself. You think that you can escape your own sin by pointing out someone else's. And that seems to be man's tendency all along. It's easy to point out what's wrong with other people and it oftentimes makes us feel better because look how bad they are. And that's really what gossip is. Gossip is telling the bad things about someone else and being glad about it. Why? Why are we so happy to tell those things? Well, it makes us feel better if someone else is really bad. But he says, you're not excused either. You, you talk about their problems, but what about your issues? And, and Jesus pointed this out in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, you know, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after has committed adultery in his heart, that you should not commit murder, but whoever hates his brother and calls him a fool, is guilty of murder within his heart. And so Jesus tells us, and Paul brings it home, that it's a matter of the heart, and you're not excused either. That you too are without excuse and have no foundation. And now here in chapter 3, he kind of puts us all in the same bowl. He says the Gentiles, they're without excuse. The Jews, you're without excuse and now in chapter 3, after explaining to the Jews that you guys are without excuse, he starts and he says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. So after his last arguments of, You Jews, too, are without excuse. You've got the law, but you are unable to live by the law. So they would argue, and here's Paul debating against himself, and he's going to do this throughout the book. He then says, well then, what, what good is it? 
If we're in the same condition as the Gentile, what good is it then being a Jew or having circumcision? And it seems to be as there's a lot of things that he could go on and say, but he says in every way, first of all, and he doesn't get on to the second and third and fourth, fifth, but he says the, the first and I guess most obvious advantage is that you are entrusted with the words of God, and he means the scripture. That you've been entrusted with the scripture. And so that is a huge advantage because to you was given and declared what God's will is. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture. And this is referring to, again, the Old Testament. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that is an advantage that was given to the Jews. He was given the breath of God, God's word, to give him instruction, to reprove him, to exhort him, to equip him, to help him understand what it is God wants to know. And that God breathed, those scriptures are now including the New Testament that we've been given and that we're reading here. And so he tells to the Jews, you have a huge advantage because you have the understanding of what God really is about, who he really is, what he has for his people. You've been given that, and that's huge. And it's important to recognize this because what Paul is not trying to do is saying that because you are a Jew, it means nothing. No, it means a lot. God called these people. God revealed himself to these people. God worked in and through these people to bring about the Messiah, Jesus. But you see, being a Jew, he said the last chapter, is one that is inward. That circumcision is that of the heart. But at the same time, God through the scriptures revealed what he was doing so that the circumcision and the giving of the law is an advantage. Now, how is it an advantage? What, what, what way does it profit? How is it that the Jewish people can profit even though the, the law itself could not bring them to that close relationship with God? It still could provide guidance for them. When Europe was being ravaged by the bubonic bubonic plague, bubonic plague. And it devastated Europe. The Jews, to a large extent, were exempt from that plague. Why, because they knew God? No, because of their ritual cleansing and their dietary laws. So they're keeping themselves clean and what they ate, it kept them from a large part of that plague. Just by their ceremonies, just by the things they did for their cleanliness. I'm thinking of a word and it's not coming to my mind right now. Hygiene, hygiene that's the word I was thinking. Because of their hygiene and their dietary law, it 
kept them from a large part of that plague to the point where people would start accusing them saying that they were the ones causing the plague because they were so much exempt from it. See, God's law and God's rules were good even though they didn't maybe have a relationship with God by following the religious aspects of it, it prevented them from that downfall. And, and even true with us, it says in Proverbs 14.34 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. If a nation will live right by God's eyes, it will be free from a lot of problems. If a nation is given over to debauchery, to drunkenness, it's going to corrupt that nation. It's going to affect the workforce. It's going to affect the mindset. When the family starts to crumble, a nation starts to crumble because now the nucleus of that nation is starting to erode and now the foundation isn't as secure and stable. And, and righteousness is a big and important part of a nation. And we see the corruption of our nation and the economic downfall. You can't really say that they're not hand in hand, that they go hand in hand. And it's not necessarily that just, oh yes, it was a quote, a Christian nation. But when a nation follows the things that are right, it's to its benefit. It's healthy. The same thing true of people. You know, how is it that people live, you know, longer when they don't do all the wrong things? Well, it's obvious. It's better for your body. But if you're abusing drugs and you're, you know, living a, a loose life and you're, you know, intoxicated and you're, well, it's going to affect your body. And so, the truths that are there in scripture are a benefit. And the nation that follows those things are going to benefit. And so they're a benefit in a lot of ways. And Paul tells them, hey, you've been given the, the oracles or the words of God. They're a benefit to you. They will guide you. They will show you the right things, the wrong things. They will keep you from a lot of error if you will follow them. And so they are a benefit. In verse 3, he goes on, he says, another argument, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying and has and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. And so Paul now brings out a couple more arguments. And 
he basically in these verses is bringing out three points. The first point in verses one and two, he says, if the Jew stands under the wrath of God as the Gentiles, what advantage does he have? The answer is, well, he possesses the words of God, the truth. The second point that he brings in verses three and four, but if this position of God's word has not brought faith to Israel in the Messiah, then hasn't God failed? And that's kind of what he talks about those first verses in three and four is that, well, if this faith is there, but it hasn't been something that the Jewish people have embraced, well, then hasn't God failed? And the answer to this is, is certainly not. Instead, it proves that God is faithful and he is patient. And so they're arguing here, and what Paul is doing is bringing about the arguments of that time, the arguments that those people were raising against Christianity. They're saying, well, if Jesus was the Messiah and the Jewish nation isn't believing in him, then hasn't God failed? The Messiah came, but they didn't receive him? And God's saying, it's not God's fault, but it's man's fault. Let God be true and every man a liar. And the verse that he quotes, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge, is actually a quote from Psalm 51. And the first part of Psalm 51, David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You see, even though David's sin in our perspective was against men, against Uriah specifically, and Bathsheba, he recognizes that it was first against God. Against you and you only have I sinned. And so there's this recognition of God, it's against you that this shortcoming has come upon us. It's not against other people, it's against you, God. And so you're proved right when you speak and you will prevail when you judged. It's not God's fault that people don't believe. It's people's fault. It's our fault. And we are so quick to try and find blame on someone else and try and give our way, our, ourselves a way out. I can't help it, everybody does it. I mean, how many things have we heard that takes the pressure off of us and tries to put it on God, tries to put it on someone else. And isn't it amazing? People who do not believe in God pull God out of the cupboard whenever they need to blame someone. Well, if God's a God of love, why is there so much evil in the world? Boom, they pull out the God, you know, blame the blame on God card. Okay, you win, there's no God, take him away. Now what do you do? Now, how do you explain the evil in the world? Take God out of the picture. Now, now whose fault is it? Well, you see, then it's my fault. Then it's our fault. Then I have to be accountable for my own actions. And so then, what do I say? And that's what Paul is bringing about here. God is true and every man is a liar. It's not God's fault for your unfaithfulness. The Jews are responsible for what they believe. We are responsible for what we believe. 
And it's not God who's at fault. It's our problem. And so he lets them know that, no, God's true and everyone's a sinner. And then the last portion in verses 5 and 8, where he talks about, if sin then brings glory to God, in other words, if my sinning proves that God was right, and I'm obviously then showing that God is right by sinning, then how can he object to me and show wrath on me when I'm proving that he is right? I know it's a twisted argument, you know, but I've actually heard these kinds of things. I mean, we, we hear it in a different way. We might hear it in the frame that, well, everybody does it. So if, you know, how could, you know, if, if God's going to blame someone, how can he blame something when everybody does it? Why didn't he make me so I don't do it? But if he made me this way, how can he judge me for being this way? Something along those lines. Because this is how he made me. And the argument, or the answer, is the argument condemns itself. Because you're questioning God's very justice. In other words, you're actually admitting your own guilt. Well, you know, how can God condemn me for doing this when, you know, if he made me this way? Well, you know you're that way. Why don't you stop being that way? You, you need to make the change. Don't blame God. It's up to you. I sat down and talked with a young man today about an issue that he's having and drinking. And we came down, you know, we're going to try and get him some help and take him to a place that's going to be able to get him out of the circumstance that he's in. But it came down to, you know, your hope isn't getting to that place. Your hope is that you want to change. You want to stop this. And so this, this place will help you to stop that. But until you want to, then what do you do? There's a saying that I heard, and it's funny because one of Lauren's friends, she told me just recently, I still remember that thing that you said. Mm -hmm. And it's, people will not change until the pain of remaining the same outweighs the pain of the change. In other words, we're going to stay the way we are until we can't take it anymore and it pushes us somewhere else. And we finally just say, I, I don't want to live this life. And that's where this young man is at. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to live this way. Okay, the pain of being the same is pushing you to change. And so Paul then is arguing with them. You know, you're blaming God, but you're obviously in a place that you know is wrong. God is just. You can't blame God for your condition. And, and what he's, he's talking about here, too, is just, in verse 8, it says, Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Apparently, people are saying, because Paul is saying, it is by faith in Jesus that you are saved, they are being twisted and saying that Paul is saying, well, let us do evil that grace may abound. And it's amazing how we flip to extremes. I'm going to talk about this a little bit on Sunday. I mean, last Sunday when I spoke in uh, Romans chapter 2 about judging, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. And who are you to condemn someone else? And that, that that's not our position to try and condemn people. You know, 
automatically, well, people can go to the other extent and say, oh, good, no one condemns me, I can do what I want. It's like, no, I didn't say that. And you ever had those arguments with your kids? You know, well, don't, you know, I don't want you to, well, then, can I do this? No, I didn't say that. They jump to the extreme. And, and for some reason, we're quick to jump to the extreme. Because Paul said, you have faith in Jesus, that's what will justify you. People are saying, oh, you're saying you can live how you want and do evil that grace may abound. He says, no, their judgment is, is just. That's not what we're saying. That's not at all what we're saying. That's not the point here. And so they're twisting these words and what we're saying, they're, they're being deceptive. And you know, we, we see this sometimes as well in the Christian arena where people will say, well, let us do evil that grace may abound. Well, the end will justify the means. I can lie if it brings glory to God. There was years ago a comedian and a, a traveling evangelist, so to speak, named Mike Warnke. I don't know if any of you guys remember him. And he had this testimony that he was a high priest for some cult and he was once a witch and he became a Christian and it was all fabricated. It was all made up. He wasn't at all. It was a story. It made a powerful testimony and he gave powerful altar calls and people accepted the Lord in his ministry, but it was based on a lie. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Your judgment is just. You can't do that. It's wrong. You're deceptive. And you can't think that it's okay to be deceptive. That's not right. Your judgment is just. And so people do that. And, and we have to be careful that we don't, you know, pad the truth, so to speak, to make, oh, it's for God's glory. No. It's really for yourself. Maybe it's so that you look good, so your story isn't boring. I don't know. You know, it's like, well, I wasn't a, a witch. So I got to make something good up. You know, I, I was a warlock. You know, whatever. <laughs> no, the truth needs to be proclaimed. And so, anyway, that was silly. Uh, but we can't be deceptive just for the sake of thinking it's going to be a good thing. The truth matters. It matters to God. He goes on then in verse 9, and he says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better as Jews? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. And, and what he's going to go through right now is a, a number of Psalms and Ecclesiastes where he talks about what we know as the depravity of man says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Let's stop there, because that's pretty harsh. There's no one righteous. What about Gandhi? He was a righteous guy. There's no one righteous. What about Billy Graham? There's no one righteous. No, not one. What about Paul? There's no one righteous, no, not one. We like to judge based on what we know. You know, I, I had been playing guitar for a while, and 
felt pretty good. I, I, I felt like I had a good handle of the guitar. I could play pretty well. And then I remember going and seeing Phil Kagey. And I remember thinking, I don't know what he does, because if I play guitar, that's not the same thing. <laughs> Some, someone did something. He's got an extra hand somewhere and extra brain cells, and, and he sings too. And all of a sudden, the standard of what I thought guitar playing was got raised. You know, you ever go to one of those places where they have a, a, a pitching machine that, you know, judges how fast you throw a ball? You know, and you think, I had a good arm. I remember, you know, when I was young, I had a good arm, and I get to there, and I throw the ball as hard as I can, and it's 60 miles an hour, you know, 62. And I go, no way, 62? And this is at a close distance, and then you watch professional baseball and the average is 84 and you're thinking oh my gosh and then you get those guys who throw in the high 90s and you're thinking oh my gosh how do you do that well that's why you get paid millions of dollars if you can if you can do that if you can throw 60 you get paid nothing you know you don't make the team that you don't don't have what it takes to to make the grade there's no one righteous, no, not one. And you see, we like to judge amongst ourselves, but we're not the standard. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the one who we have to measure against. And now we find ourselves, oh, I don't make the grade. I don't quite cut it. I'm not good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. And no one seeks God. Now, that, that's, that's another tough one, because no one seeks God. And what he's, he's talking about here is there is an inability that is a part of our nature. There is a sickness in humanity that prevents us from being able to connect to God. Well, what about, you know, those monks who, who spend those time or those, you know, um, the Tibetan monks that are off there, don't they seek God? You know, maybe they seek peace. Maybe they seek status. I don't know what it is that they seek. But there's something in mankind that enables them to quite get to that place where they actually seek God. And everything that we actually seek, seek actually ends up becoming something about ourselves. We just can't get past ourselves. No one seeks God. Well, but they pray, they do these things. Well, maybe they're, again, seeking adulation of men. Maybe they're seeking self-righteousness. I don't know. But there's something in man that is so missing the mark that no one seeks God. Verse 12, it says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now what he's again doing is saying God has a standard and 1 John 1 verses 5, in fact let's turn there because this is a powerful scripture. 1 John chapter 1 starting at verse 5. John writes, 
This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is perfect. And in him there is no darkness. How do we fit? How can I bring anything of me that's free of darkness? There is, there's dirt in my life and I can't bring it to perfection. You just can't do it. Sometimes I'll, I'll go dog training and I'll go into a home and I've got these boots that I wear because it helps so that the dogs don't bite my feet because some of them try to. And they're, they're not, you know, they're boots that dogs have bitten. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not Gucci, you know, or whatever kind of boots you might wear. They're just kind of work boots. And I'll go into these homes and they have these white shag carpets, you know, and they have the white fluffy dog too, you know, and who's acting like a devil. And I walk in there and I say, oh, can you take your boots off? And it'll be like, no, let's move somewhere else because I'm not going to let your dog bite my feet. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to work this situation, but I can't go there in that circumstance. I, I, I don't, I'm not allowed on the carpet. Well, God is perfect. And, and we come in full of mud. And how can we walk into heaven that is pure white with the mud that's in our lives? We can't. He, he's light. In him is no darkness at all. If, in verse 6, we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. That's revealing. Because we do live in darkness at times. And if we say we have fellowship when we're in that condition, it's not right. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Remember the Oxy commercials? Where Billy Mays here. I liked Billy Mays. And he would pour the iodine and he'd pour all that stuff into that bowl and the bowl would be like a dark red and then he'd pour in the OxyClean and he'd pour it in and stir it and then it would clean up the bowl and it would get better. Well, John here just introduced the OxyClean of the human soul. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You can't get there in your condition, but you introduce the blood of Jesus Christ and it's able to cleanse you so that now you can have fellowship with the light. And this is what Paul is bringing about. You can't get there in your condition. You can't. There's nothing in you that qualifies. It's going to take something else. Go back to Romans. He's going to continue his list in verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace 
they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is far from the you're okay, I'm okay. Okay, this, this is you're not okay and I'm not either. He talks about their throats are an open grave. The things that they say, the things that come from their mouth, they're poisonous, they're filled with gossip, they're hurtful. The things that they do, their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, they're willing to sacrifice people for themselves. And we see these things take place, the things that people do, the things that people say to belittle people, to slander people. It's commonplace. And this becomes natural to mankind where we see this bickering, this biting, this backbiting, this putting down, this talking, this trying to destroy other people. And it's just, it's causing ruin. The things they say, the things they do, and even the things they see. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of the human race. Pretty bleak. And, and see, Paul has been laying the foundation. The Gentiles, yeah, you could see their depravity. The Jews, here's their self-righteous depravity. You know what? We are all depraved. We cannot make it to God. Now, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The law was given to show that you need a law. Who needs law? Lawbreakers. Why does the speed limit say 55? Because if it didn't, I'd go faster. Why? Because I can. Why does God give us instruction because otherwise I wouldn't listen. It shows that there's something wrong with me. And think about it. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. It's not like they're lofty. Don't murder. Oh, shucks. I mean, it's not like he's setting the bar so high that, man, I don't know if I can attain it. Don't lie to people. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't take someone else's wife. It's, these aren't lofty things. But we still manage to crawl underneath them. And the law is just showing us that, you know what? You need a law because you're lawbreakers. You're lawless. You're corrupt. The law was given to show you your condition. And it's important that we see our condition. He goes on and he says, Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So you're not going to get right by observing the law, but through it you become conscious of sin. Now, I can't leave us here. Okay, I'm not going to finish the chapter, but we got to get out of this pit. It's just too bleak to stay here. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is our way out of the pit. It's Jesus Christ. And notice this in verse 20 where it says that through the law we became conscious of sin. And also it says that don't be deceived. The righteousness in the sight of God by observing the law, it's not going to happen. There, this is actually very freeing if we will just understand. There is nothing you can do that is good enough for God. Nothing. So when will we quit trying to be good enough? When we recognize that it's not by the works of the flesh that I am justified, but it is by the gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has confused you? Having begun in the spirit, are you going to be fulfilled in the flesh? And he tells those in Galatians that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It will not happen, so quit trying to bridge the gap between you and God and earning your way. You cannot do it. What am I going to do? I am in this condition. God is perfect. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. I am in this corrupted state. I am sinful. I, I am separated from God. What can I do? You can do nothing but receive what he has done. And do you see what that does? It no longer is about what you can do. It's about what God has done for you. And this is the wonderful thing. This is the good news. This is the gospel message that the God who we were searching for, but because of our condition, were unable to seek, unable to find. All, all that we did was end up become internal. We just tried to make ourselves better, make ourselves better, and we could never be good enough. And we find out that God has reached down into our depravity, into the pit of who we are and says, I'm here. I will take care of this condition. I will take care of the debt that you owe. I will pay it through the blood of my son, Jesus. And it is in faith in him alone that we have access into the presence of God. And now Gentile, Jew are both able to come before God because of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And Paul is establishing our condition to prove the necessity of what Jesus has done. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why it is so important to have faith in him. This is why it, it moves us to share about Jesus because we know the condition. And it doesn't matter how good someone is, they're not quite good enough. And you know what, I, I think most people know that. I think most people are frustrated with that. The ones who don't know that are usually the self-righteous and religious ones. But we are in this condition that God has rescued us from. Now, I hope 
that by recognizing the condition of our nature, by recognizing our depravity, recognizing the hopelessness that we are in, we will understand the magnitude of God's gift through Jesus. That no longer do I have to worry about trying to earn my way. God has paved the way. No longer do I have to fear and wonder what will happen to me, God. How am I Am I going to make the cut? Am I going to make the grade? Jesus has made the grade for you. He has passed the test. And that gives us reason to celebrate. That's our reason to rejoice. That's our reason to honor God. That is why we worship and praise him. That has taken our eyes and affixed them on the creator instead of the creature. It's no longer what I can do. It's what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I know that myself, and I, I can imagine it happens with you as well, every now and then you get into a place where you just feel condemned. You feel like, I'm not a Christian. I can't be. Look at the things that go through my mind. Look at the things that come out of my mouth. Look at the things I, I think about. How can I be a Christian? I can't be a Christian. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Turn back to First John. Chapter 1, continuing now in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Paul just told us, let God be true and every man a liar. We all have sinned. If we say we don't, we're lying. But if we confess our sin, the word confess means to be in agreement. If we agree and say, God, this is my condition. I am struggling. My thoughts, the things that I say, my heart, it, it, it struggles to be near you, God. That's my condition. Then God says, no problem. I got it covered. I can cleanse you. From that unrighteousness, I can take care of that. Come on, come into the house. The carpet's clean. So are you because of what Jesus has done. Don't worry about the shoes. Don't worry about that. I've clothed you with my righteousness. You're saying, I'm filthy. No, here, I've got a robe for you. It's perfect. It's white. And you can come into my presence like you are, believing in what Jesus has done. You guys, that's the good news. That's the good news, and we need to recognize this because that's what Jesus has done for us so that we could have that relationship. In, res in response to this, what can we do? Give him thanks. Give him praise. 
Father, I, I thank you that, Lord, you have made possible our lives to be useful. And Lord, as long as you have given us breath, that breath can give you praise. That breath can intercede for those around us. That breath can bring honor to you. And Father, I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for the work you've begun in us that you will complete. And Lord, we limit you so so much and we see things in such a limited perspective God we tend to focus on the things that are seen and are temporary and not the things that are eternal and so many times we live a life that is limited not recognizing that you have already given us eternal life, that you have already written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you are doing a work that is eternal. And that work and that life is all possible because of your Son, Jesus. And so thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your, your patience with us, Lord, for loving us so much that you have made the way possible so that we can see you, so that we can live and be a part of the life that you give. I pray you'd bless all here tonight, Lord. Might we be strengthened with the knowledge that comes from what you've done. May our lives be set free because we have been given the gift of eternal life through your son Jesus. I pray you would bless everyone here, Lord. Thank you again for your goodness and your, your mercy. We love you, Jesus, and we offer these things to you in your son's name.